The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who, push, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? To sign up for either of those newsletters, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our number in Queens, New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours, Monday through Friday. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Copper Bank Resources Corp., and Calinex Mines. I've titled today's show, America's Wars, Who Profits from Them, Who Ensures They Happen. My guests for today's show are Gene Epstein and James Perloff. Gene will be with me in just a couple of minutes to talk about this week's New York City Junto meeting that will feature John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods. Then after Gene, I will be speaking with James Perloff in the first of a 12-episode series in which we discuss chapter by chapter his very important book titled Truth is a Lonely Warrior, Unmasking the Forces Behind Global Destruction. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and I do a weekly podcast in which Daniel talks about what is actually happening with respect to foreign wars that the U.S. is perpetually engaged in, that as opposed to what the American propaganda machine is telling us is taking place. Big difference. And Daniel and I talk about that every week. Likewise, we talk frequently on this show about how the Federal Reserve Bank is engaging in a monetary policy that was not only ineffective in the past, like in the 1930s, and is once again ineffective, but that it is also planting the seeds of an illicit monetary growth that guarantees another economic bust right ahead. And, and this one, it looks to be of gargantuan proportions and not in the too distant future, unfortunately. Well, back in 2009, my very first episode of Turning Hard Times into Good Times, I featured Ed Griffin. He's the author of A Creature from Jekyll Island because I felt at that time it was the book that most accurately defined who owns and runs America. Ed's book still ranks as one of the best on that subject, but it is my view that James Perloff's book, 
Truth is a Lonely Warrior, goes even deeper into the belly of the beast in explaining what is really going on, deeper even than the creature from Jekyll Island. Therefore, I am planning to devote the first show of every month to discuss two chapters of James Perloff's book each and every month. Since there are 23 chapters in the book, this series should last the better part of one year. This week we will dis- discuss chapters 1 and 2, which delves deeply into why we got into the past six major wars and who was responsible in setting up events to rally the American people behind a war that we arguably did not, did not need to get into. I know James Perloff's views will be very controversial to many of you, but I do welcome your feedback. Simply drop a line to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts uh, about the topics that you hear, heard discussed on this show in general, but specifically with regard to James Perloff's views. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's take our first commercial break. Immediately after that, we will be talking to Gene Epstein, then followed by James Perloff. Don't go away. Be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Gene Epstein, who writes the Economic Beat column for Barron's. Gene also leads discussions with notable speakers at the monthly New York City Junto meetings that take place during the on the first Thursday of every month at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenues in New York City. And that is why I like to have Gene appear with me at least for a short segment on the first Tuesday of every month so he can talk about the upcoming New York City Junto, and then also a, a couple of his ideas about the economy and other pro, uh, relevant uh, issues. Well, welcome, Gene. It's good to have you with me again. Pleasure to be here. Now, can you uh, tell us just briefly what's coming up? A very exciting meeting coming up uh, at the New York City Junto this coming Thursday. What's going to take place there? Well, uh, I, uh, I'm glad you said it's exciting. I'm certainly excited about it. It will be uh, an Oxford 
style debate this time. And uh, it will be a debate between Whole Foods co-CEO John Mackey and investigative reporter Nina Tickles. Now, John Mackey is sort of cast against type in this sense. He is a, a pretty forthright libertarian. I do recommend his book, Conscious Capitalism. It's been a bit somewhat divisive argument that he's put out as a libertarian, but I basically support it. Uh, so on the one hand, he's a libertarian. On the other hand, John Mackey, uh, who does sell meat at uh, Whole Foods, is an ethical vegan. He is, he's lectured on diet and the importance of the vegan diet, although he's going to be defending a proposition that argues that a 90% vegan diet with some meat, since he's making allowances for the fact that people have to meet and eat some meat, is good. Nina Tekholz, on the other hand, has written a book called The Big Fat Surprise, <laughs> Why Meat, Butter, and Eggs are actually, actually belong in a healthy diet. Her book has uh, one awards uh, listed as the ten, one of the 10 top books of the year by the Wall Street Journal and by Forbes. It got a very uh, supportive review in a science journal out of England, and um, she's going to be defending the other side, which is that uh, those of us actually like meat, uh, butter, and eggs are uh, adopting those foods as part of a healthy diet. Now, given the fact that diet, there are paleos out there, and uh, you know most Paleos do tend to be libertarian, so that's why it's kind of an interesting switch. Um, there will be, this will be an Oxford-style debate in which the audience will vote initially for, against, or undecided about the resolution, and then at the end, uh, they'll vote again, and whoever moves the needle, as in the Oxford-style debate, uh, will technically win uh, the debate. Uh, it's going to be very well attended, and so I recommend that people try to arrive uh, at the Brown seven o'clock uh, the seatings start uh, informally at 730 and the vote starts and then the debate begins at eight o'clock that's at 20 West 44th Street in Midtown Manhattan just off Fifth Avenue on 44th Street hope right. you all come yeah it, it'll be an exciting event thank you uh, for that overview Gene now you know another hot topic I'd like to get your your views on with a few minutes we have left here is uh, an audit the Fed provision that Rand Paul is supporting and Bloomberg television put out a question to its viewers yesterday asking them the vote vote yay or nay on whether the Fed should be audited. And uh, one of the anchors at Bloomberg said, uh, the Fed's policies are the only thing that's working these days, so just leave them alone. That was her, uh, that was her position. What are your thoughts on this issue, Gene? Well, uh, my, it's interesting uh, that uh, you know, that uh, Rand Paul, who sometimes has strayed from his father, Ron Paul, uh, most of your listeners are probably familiar with the fact that uh, Rand is the son of Ron, and by the way, was not ma- named for Ayn Rand, just named Randall, uh, but uh, Rand is uh, pushing the same legislation that his father pushed, uh, and those of us, I think like you and me, uh, Jay, who basically endorse Ron Paul's book and the Fed would 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 actually favor that kind of legislation, which mm-hmm. is simply end the Fed. But as for auditing the Fed, uh, it's a let's call it a baby step in the right direction. All it does is call for the uh, for the General Accounting Office to do a periodic audit of the Fed's monetary policy. It's not going to be major. Those uh, studies the GEO puts out are not going to be put out. 
uh, by free market Austrian economists, but it will no doubt add to our knowledge about what uh, the Fed does, and that's really all the legislation is about. The uh, the amazing thing is uh, is the enormous pushback this is getting. Literally, Richard Fisher of the Dallas Fed, and you wouldn't have expected this, somebody from the Dallas Fed, has literally implied that this is born of a certain uh, subtle anti-Semitism. Hmm. Uh, he delivered a speech in which he likened those who want to audit the Fed to Father Coughlin. Father Coughlin, who was a famous uh, anti-Semite who lectured in the 1930s against the Jewish banksters, and he cited Father Coughlin and associated those who want to audit the Fed with Father Coughlin. So, really, it's almost comical about the passions that heat up when even even such a small gesture as having the GAO to audit the Fed is proposed. Wow. Uh, so, uh, that's, that's really the fascinating part of the story, much less in the substance of the proposal, which is that we'll have some more information about what the Fed does when those GEO wonks put on, uh, put on their uh, green eye shades and take a close look at the Fed. Well, it, that's it, if the legislation passes. Is, it certainly seems hard for me to understand what would be the downside in having an open understanding of what the Fed is up to. I, I suppose those argue that uh, the people have to be kept in the dark down on the mushroom farm, I suppose. But You've got to event, maintain those philosopher kings you know, yeah. behind closed doors. Oh, I think that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You make economics much more complicated than it needs to be, I think, Gene. Yeah, well, anyway, absolutely. Gene, we are out of time, unfortunately. We'll, we'll have to have you back again talk some more about this and many other topics. Thanks for being with pleasure, me today. Pleasure as always. Bye-bye. Well, folks, don't go away because coming right back after the commercial break, James Perloff will be with me uh, to talk about his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. You don't want to miss this thought-provoking discussion on recent American wars, why we got into them, who really wants them, and who profits from them. So don't go away. I'll be right back with James Perloff. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbols CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me this week and for uh, for one show a month starting this uh, March, James Perloff, author of many books, the latest of which is Truth is a Lonely, War- Lonely Warrior, will be with me. Uh, the, and we're scheduling this series of discussions to discuss in great depth Truth is a Lonely Warrior on the first Tuesday of each month, starting in March of 2015. The subtitle to this uh, book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, is Unmasking the Faces Behind Global Destruction. Uh, and I think we're, as we talk on this show frequently, we're seeing a great deal of global destruction all around us. So we want to try to understand what's at the heart of this and uh, the evidence of who is, in, who is responsible for what's going on. That's uh, basically what we want to talk about over the next, uh, really over the next year, because there are 23 chapters in the book. It means if we address two chapters uh, each month, uh, it will take us about a year to finish this discussion. So this is a book that I found to be very, very insightful. Um, the work of, of James is, is controversial for sure, but it is collaborated by a long list of guests that we have uh, had on this show dating back to March of 2009 when Ed Griffin was our very first guest. Others uh, have been Ron Paul, John Perkins, Daniel Estulin, Adrian Salbucci, Jim Rogers, Doug Casey, John Coleman, uh, and James Perloff himself has been on this show previously. These are men that have all looked at history of the wars of the United States and that we've gotten ourselves into in one way or another, and they've provided some evidence contrary to the mainstream account of how we got into those wars and, and for reasons for doing so that does not add up to the facts in many cases. So we're watching events even now unfold in real time in the Ukraine and in the Middle East. We talked to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity on a blog that is at J. Taylor Media. Daniel comes on almost every week to talk about the latest events, the current events in geopolitics and the wars that the United States is getting into. And we're finding accounts uh, that Daniel gives us also that collaborate the bigger picture that James Perloff uh, talks about in The Truth as a Lonely Warrior. You know, as Ron Paul noted in the presidential debates, he said the reason they're over here is because we're over there on 9-11. That's the reason they came over here on 9-11. The CIA had reports confirming the same thing, and it just stands to reason. If you have somebody in your own country uh, that are using drones and and, uh, bombs and killing you, you might not like those folks so much, and at some point you might even retaliate. And here's what's really got me puzzled and has me really alarmed, and and another reason that I really wanted to talk to James Perloff in, in depth. You know, Albert Einstein is credited with noting the definition of insanity as being doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We see this, we certainly see it happening in the area I'm most familiar with in the financial markets. We see it happening with uh, economic policy from the 1930s all the way up into the present time. Keynesian economics, money printing, deficit spending is supposed to create uh, prosperity according to all those brilliant folks with PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And yet, the continuation of that leads to more and more destruction in a global economy. The same thing can be said about foreign policy. Daniel McAdams points out time and time again on our weekly uh, podcast that, in fact, we continue to make the Middle East, for example, much more dangerous uh, and much more uh, unstable than it was before we got involved uh, years ago. So we really want to know, why why are we doing the same thing over and over again? Why are the powers behind the throne continuing to mess things up globally? And who are those powers behind the throne who are responsible for pulling the strings of the supposed elected governments uh, of the Western world? 
And so it is in quest of those answers to those questions that we want to talk to James uh, Perloff. In addition to this book, his uh, the, the latest book that, I, that we're going to be talking about here, he has also um, written, the first book that I was familiar with that he's written was The Shadows of Power. That's an expose of private influence on American foreign policy. It sold over 100,000 copies. And two books uh, also he's written about uh, the Darwinian theory of evolution, uh, he's debunked that with uh, books called uh, Tornado uh, in a Junkyard, uh, and another one that he wrote the new uh, for the New American. Well, he wrote that one for the New American Magazine, uh, and he is a regular contributor also for Henry Macau, Macau, HenryMacau dot com. Uh, he is a composer of uh, politically incorrect music CD. Freedom shall return. And he wrote the script for Free Mind Films. It's a new documentary, uh, Shadow Ring. Uh, but it, it is his uh, latest work, The Truth uh, is a Lonely Warrior, that we do want to talk to James about. So thanks, James, for joining me. It's really good to have you with me again. And uh, it's uh, good being back with you, Jay. I know you're a veteran with a lot of understanding of world affairs. Well, we try to understand what's going on uh, among the smoke and the confusion that's created, I think, in many cases, uh, sometimes just out of ignorance, but in many cases, perhaps out of design. Uh, I'd like to say to keep people down on the mushroom farm. You know, you feed them fecal matter and keep them in the dark. And as long as you have people that don't really understand what's going on, then they're not in a position to really to object to what is going on. So, you know, it's said that the, ca- the first casualty of war is truth. Uh, and so I'd like to talk to you, or have you talk to us, rather. It's not me talking to, to you, uh, but you talking to us about the first two chapters of the book. The first chapter is titled uh, Six Wars. And I would like to begin with the Spanish-American War, if you can talk about that. It took place under President Kin- McKinley, uh, and then wind our way through the most recent war that you describe in the book, namely the Iraqi War. Uh, in between, uh, we want to also today talk about World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. And then, um, before the end of today's show, we also want to get to the second chapter of your book, uh, The Powers That Be. Uh, but first, let's uh, let's talk about the Spanish-American War uh, as orchestrated, as I understand it, in reading your book, under some false pretenses. What what can you tell us about that? I could tell you enough to take up the whole show, uh, never mind those other wars and other topics. But the Spanish-American War, I consider it significant, Jade, because it was the first war in which Americans were persuaded that the purpose of our military was not national self-defense. Oh. This war was fought over... Spain's colony, Cuba, and it was the first war where we were persuaded that the duty of our military was to go overseas and right wrongs for other people. That was a very significant, <clears throat> I think that one reason why this war, uh, this battleground was chosen, they wanted to have uh, a very winnable war that would convince people that uh, these types of wars would be easily fought, and so the Spanish-American War, uh, of course, we, we completely overwhelmed Spain in terms of our military capacity, and we're fighting in Cuba, which was less than 100 miles from our shore and more than 4,000 miles from, from Spain. And the Spanish knew they couldn't win this war. They did everything they could to prevent it. But we were uh, brought into the war partly through a skill that has been honed over time, and that is mass media propaganda lies. I mean, modern people in the truth movement are aware of some of these lies, such as the famous baby incubator story that helped sway public opinion to support the 1991 Gulf War. Well, they were doing this back during the 
Spanish-American War through what was called the Yellow Press, uh, William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Pulitzer, the New York Journal, the New York World. And they were putting these uh, fake atrocity stories, and uh, uh, they were saying that the Spaniards... Bear in mind, Cuba was a very wealthy colony of Spain. The banksters here in America wanted that that colony and its uh, its uh, sugar industry, which it was had become the most lucrative in the world by the 19th century. And so, it was necessary to persuade Americans that the Spaniards were doing these dastardly things to the Cubans. So we were told that they were roasting priests. And I'll read you a headline for William Randolph Hearst. Uh, New York Journal, October the 6th, 1896, quote, Cubans fed to sharks, cries heard at night. They are taken outside the harbor, and the silent ferryman comes back alone, unquote. Or how about this one? Quote, raided a hospital, more than 40 sick and wounded Cubans butchered, unquote. But, you know, there was no hospital in the place where the newspaper was describing. Hearst made up a lot of these stories sitting in New York, and his own reporters in, in Cuba never went outside the bars of Havana, so... This was something that would be seen again and again, inventing atrocity stories, actually to to take advantage of the native goodness of Americans, making them think that you've got to go fight these evil, evil people overseas. Uh-huh. And, and by the way, Jay, let me just say that atrocities do take place, but usually the real ones you don't hear about, the ones that get uh, us going to war usually are not ones that are real. Mm-hmm. So there's pretty good evidence, and in fact, that these were nothing but fabricated stories or lies. And I find it striking. You said Pulitzer was involved as well. Uh, yeah, he, he and uh, Hearst were the their newspapers were leading the charge uh, for this war. And of course, the main trigger point. Um, I talk in this chapter about false flags. The main false flag was the sinking of the main. No uh, pun intended. Uh, we sent a battleship down there on a so-called friendly visit that served no purpose to have a battleship there. We had no vital interest in Cuba. It was not our property. And uh, two days after uh, William Randolph Hearst printed a headline that said the worst insult to uh, the United States in its history, he had had had, uh, a letter from the Spanish ambassador to America stolen, and it was critical of McKinley. He had it printed in his newspaper under that headline, Worst Insult to America in its History. Two days later, the Maine blew up, and 266 Americans were dead. And, of course, you, you, you know that the battle cry of the war was remember the Maine into hell with Spain. There is not the slightest uh, evidence whatsoever that the Maine was sunk by the Spanish. They had no, uh, they had demonstrated every willingness to cooperate with us. They bent over backwards to avoid this war. Their, the commander of their Atlantic squadron, Admiral Severa, said they had no hopes of winning a war against us. They had, they had wooden warships. We had steel warships. And this, this difference of firepower was borne out in the actual naval engagements, the Battle of Manila and the Battle of Santiago. Not only did we wipe out their fleets, uh, we did not only have uh, just uh, no ships lost. We only had one fatality in either of those engagements. One of those fatalities was from a heart attack. The Spanish would not have, blo- have tried to provoke us by sinking the main. But you'll see this pattern of false flag events. Of course, the next one was a Lusitania. But, right, uh, exactly. The, well, I, I just find it interesting that Pulitzer, we have the Pulitzer Prize, which is supposed to be you know, the, the, the major prize in journalism, right? It's supposed to be for, uh, given to, honest, uh, to, to people who provide uh, honest insights uh, in, in the media and help people understand some very important stories that are going on. Sort of ironic. Well, Let's not forget that Walter Durante was given the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting in the Soviet Union when he denied that there was any starvation taking place at the very time of the uh, Holodomor. That was when six million Ukrainians uh, starved to death uh, under Stalin 
uh, from food confiscation by his communist brigade. So let's let's not attach too much significance to the Pulitzer Prize. No, I guess not. Uh, but do you have a sense then? I mean, Hearst was a very wealthy man. Uh, was there some was there some more money behind this uh, besides the the journalist or besides Hearst himself? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was uh, this was National Citibank's war. I'm going to give you a quote. This is from uh, Ferdinand Lundberg, and he, you, you're probably familiar with him. He wrote a book called America Sixty Families. He used mm-hmm. to write for the Wall Street Journal, and he he re, he did uh, the behind the scenes reporting of his day. And he said he said this: the uh, the National City Bank during McKinley's incumbency was significantly more closely involved in administration affairs than any other bank. Unquote. Just to flesh that in, uh, National City Bank was the biggest bank in America. It was the predecessor of today's Citibank, and on its board had representatives of J.P. Morgan. John D. Rockefeller and the Rothschilds, and uh, President McKinley had gone bankrupt when he was governor of Ohio. He was bailed out by a Rockefeller syndicate led by Mark Hanna, who was an old classmate of John D. Rockefeller's, and then Mark Hanna then became the, the political boss of the White House. Uh, the, the, pres- the president used to be uh, satirically called McHanna, and so he was controlled by National City Bank. National City Bank loaned us the money to fight the Spanish-American War, $200 million. Remember, there was no Fed yet. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, not only did National Citibank get control of Cuba's sugar industry after they loaned us the money to fight that war, but the, the guy who negotiated that $200 million loan, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, was Frank Vanderlip. When the war was over, National Citibank rewarded him by making him the president of National City Bank, and I'm sure you, you're familiar with this famous memoir when he talks about his trip to Jekyll Island to attend the secret founding of the Federal Reserve. Exactly. He was one of the principals in doing that, and we're certainly going to talk about that, I'm sure, some more over the next number of months, uh, James. But let's, go, let's move on then to uh, World War I. Uh, what events led up to uh, the U.S. getting into World War I? Uh, that was the war that was supposed to end all wars and make the world safe for democracy. It's a war that was uh, prosecuted under Woodrow Wilson's watch. So uh, well, talk to us about World War I, and, and, and how did we... How were the American people tricked into getting into that war? Well, once again, uh, we were told that uh, we had a duty to right wrongs overseas. We were told that the Germans were cutting the hands off thousands of Belgian children. This was investigated after the war. It was not true. Uh, When journalists went over there, they couldn't find a single witness to such an event. And, of course, these guys like to stick with a winner. The sinking of the Maine had worked in World War and uh, the Spanish-American War, and so the sinking of a ship would be used again to bring us into this war. Ships going down are good because they're underwater; they're hard to investigate. The peop- American people were told this about the Lusitania. Now, this was a British passenger ship uh, when it was sunk in May of 1915. It we were not yet involved in World War One, but it was going strong between the Axis and uh, the Central Powers and the Allies, including Britain. Britain wanted very much to bring us into the war, and Winston Churchill was uh, at the head of this plot. He, uh, he was the one who violated what was called the cruiser rules. He had uh, his own uh, merchant vessels armed in order to ram German submarines, which prevented the U-boats from surfacing to allow passengers to dis- disembark. And he expressly said in his, his, his post-war uh, book um, uh, that he had done this uh, in the hopes of bringing uh, America into the war. 
he was hoping that some uh, German subcommander would, uh, through the defective vision of a periscope, would mistake a American ship for a British ship and sink it. Well, that didn't happen. He wasn't getting satisfaction. So the next best thing was to have a British ship sunk with Americans on board. The Lusitania, Americans were told that the Lusitania, which was a British passenger ship on its way from New York City to Liverpool, uh, it, uh, 128 Americans died when it went down, and we were told that the Germans sank it just to kill women and children. That was not the case. The Germans were under a catch-22. This ship had on board, uh, this is what the American people didn't know, it had over 6 million rifle cartridges, over 50 tons of shrapnel shells, about 50 tons of aluminum powder, which the British used in their mines. It had uh, uh, tons of tons of gun cotton, uh, which they used in their uh, their explosives. And uh, the uh, Germans had a choice, uh, either let this get blamed for ex killing women and children or let all this war material get to the front and kill your German sh uh, soldiers. Well, they sank the ship. It went down in just 18 minutes after one torpedo hit. But the, the other thing you need to know about the Lusitania it was sent directly into the known path of a U-boat. Winston Churchill was the head of the British Admiralty. He, he was in the map room. He saw uh, that the Lusitania was in a collision course with the U-20. The U-20 had sunk two steamers the previous day. They already had the reports of that. In addition to that, British naval intelligence had, uh, had cracked uh, Germany's naval codes, and they were getting the uh, uh, intercepts when these U-boats would surface. So they knew that the U-20 was there. And they sent the uh, Lusitania in, contrary to all protocol, with no escorts, even though there were four destroyers at the nearby port of Milford Haven. Mm. You can read about this in the book, The Lusitania, by Colin Simpson. But I'll, I'll give you one quote. This is from uh, uh, Patrick Beasley, former officer in British naval intelligence. He's considered the leading authority on the history of British naval intelligence. Here's what he wrote in his book, Room 40, about the Lusitania. Quote, nothing... Absolutely nothing was done to ensure the liner's safe arrival. I am reluctantly driven to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy, deliberately, to put the Lusitania at risk in the hope that even an abortive attack in it would bring the United States into the war. Mm. Such a conspiracy could not have been put into effect without Winston Churchill's express permission and approval, unquote, Patrick Beasley. So <laughs> we have, uh, by the way, uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for us at that time was Franklin D. Roosevelt, cousin mm. Of Winston Churchill, and when the Maine sank, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy was Franklin D. Roosevelt's cousin on this side, Teddy Roosevelt. Both Teddy and Franklin, after these incidents, went on to become Governor of New York and then President of the United States. Mm. Quite a yeah, pattern. Quite a pattern. Well, who was, uh, you know, who, who were some of the financial interests that might have been uh, interested in getting us into uh, World War One? Well, definitely Bernard Baruch, uh, who Woodrow Wilson made head of the War Industry Board. He is said to have uh, made more than $100 million personally off the war. But um, uh, Ferdinand Lundberg, once again, did an incredible job of documenting uh, what went on. Actually, he just quotes the Graham Committee of Congress, post-World War I, the Graham Committee of Congress documented that the banksters had defrauded the American public uh, out of $6 billion. This was for armaments that were never manufactured or delivered to the front. We're talking about aircraft artillery, artillery shells, $6 billion, indictments were handed down, they were all quashed, no banks to went to jail. That was one facet of the war. Uh, but one thing I've learned is that these wars are multidimensional. Mm -hmm. Like the Spanish-American War, it wasn't just about the sugar industry, it was about destroying Spain as a, 
as a power and uh, you know uh, making America into the world's policeman. World War One had many purposes. One of the, uh, I think the the one that uh, many of your listeners are most familiar with it created the first formal world government, the League of Nations, mm -hmm. which were were headed more and more towards the tyranny of world government. It also uh, was used to ignite the so uh, the Soviet Union. The revolution that created it, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, funded uh, from um, the banksters in Germany, England, and here in America, specifically Kuhn Loeb, which mm -hmm. uh, financed uh, Leon Trotsky's trip to um, Russia after the Tsar had abdicated. But in addition to that, it produced the Balfour Declaration, mm -hmm. which uh, set the stage for the generation of the State of Israel, the modern political State of Israel. I'm not talking about a biblical or godly Israel, but a political Israel, mm -hmm. funded by the same Rothschild interests that funded world government and communism. So you have a, a, a multitude of purposes. I might also mention that six months before Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, starting World War One. The Federal Reserve Act was passed, and of course that resulted in the uh, the, uh, the really the uh, government counterfeiting machine that funds all these wars. So there's a whole lot of tie together here, a whole lot of continuity. Right. So uh, now they, the city corps or city banks or didn't have to go it alone. Now they had the Federal Reserve that could socialize mm -hmm. the cost of these wars and and pass them on to the more directly to the populace through taxation and inflation. I guess. That's right, and that's why you had the Federal Reserve being created the very same year, 1913, that the income tax was passed. There was no income tax in America, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, before 1913. It had been ruled unconstitutional in 1895, and the senator who uh, proposed the income tax amendment had also uh, proposed the original Federal Reserve legislation, uh, which later was embodied in the Glass-Owen Act. Uh, that was Senator Nelson Aldrich the sure. uh, maternal grandfather of David Rockefeller. Exactly right. Okay, well, let's go to World War II. You know, we all know that the United States entered into World War II, of course, uh, to to get rid of this awful dictator, uh, Adolf Hitler, and fascism. You know, uh, we, we certainly uh, stood for the right things in World War II. At least that's... Um, what most people think uh, is the end of the story, but what you're suggesting is it's a little more complicated than that. In World War II, you will see the exact same agenda unfolding. Uh, you, we saw the uh, Federal Reserve being created right before the onset of World War One. We see the World Bank being secretly planned at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, Economic and Finance Group during World War II, before, even before Bretton Woods takes place. So that's one of the things that comes out. But we also see world government being advanced by World War II. We go from the League of Nations to the stronger United Nations. We see the Balfour Declaration now coming to fruition in the uh, creation of the modern Zionist state of Israel. And uh, whereas uh, World War I uh, set the battleground, the venue for the creation of the first communist state, World War II was used to spread communism over half the globe and engulfed, of course, the Balkans, Eastern Europe and China, and to set the stage for the Korean and Vietnam Wars. So you've got the, and of course the war profiteering as usual. So you've got the exact same agenda going forward, and I would say it was not so much about stopping a dictator as saving one. I just want to mention that World War II was generated uh, partly out of uh, uh, an attempt to save Stalin and the communist state they had created from the onslaught of Operation Barbarossa, June the 22nd, 1941. It wasn't just the Germans who invaded. It was the Finns, the Croats, the Italians, the Romanians, the Hungarians. And Stalin knew, and the Illuminati banksters knew, that if Japan attacked from the east, 
Stalin and the Soviet Union would be clamped in a vise, and I do believe that is why one month later, when all the reports showed that uh, hundreds of thousands of Russian troops were surrendering and Stalin was about to go kaput, that's why they put an oil embargo on Japan, and it was that, uh, in fact, it was an all-out trade embargo uh, one, act, one, one month after Operation Barbarossa began that led ultimately to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we put the Japanese in a position in which they really didn't have much of a choice if they were going to no, no longer have their energy needs uh, provided to them, right? So uh, we, we sort of, uh, there was also, I believe there was, uh, we had cracked the code perhaps uh, and, and understood what the Japanese were doing. If people go to my website, uh, jamesperloff.com, I have an article there uh, called Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt's 911, which talks in detail about how we had cracked Japan's diplomatic code. Uh, this is called the Purple Code. Uh, we knew in advance of the attack on Pearl Harbor, we knew that there's spies in Honolulu reporting the exact uh, locations of ships and dock. We read their declaration of war even before they handed the Secretary of State uh, Cordell Hull on December the 7th. Uh, we also had cracked their naval codes. We knew that their fleet was approaching uh, Pearl Harbor, the, the Japanese fleet ma maintained discretion, but it did not maintain complete radio silence. We also intercepted radio messages, and there were many personal warnings coming to the president from uh, people like uh, uh, the uh, Joseph Grew, our ambassador to Japan, General uh, uh, Brigadier General Elliot Thorpe, the U.S. military in Java, who had been warned by the Dutch, and many other sources. Congressman Martin Dyes learned of the attack and warned the president. There were many, many warnings passed on. You can see this document. It's not just in my article. It's in books uh, like Infamy by John Toland, uh, Day of Deceit by Robert Stennett, Pearl Harbor by George Morgenstern. This is well documented. It's not discussed in your history class in high school. Uh, I should also just add that the decision to base the fleet in Pearl Harbor was made by President Roosevelt contrary to all naval advice. The Navy begged them not to do that. Uh, it, it, Pearl Harbor is vulnerable to attack from 360 degrees. It had to be resupplied over 2,000 miles of Pacific. Uh, it was bad for morale. Uh, it was 37% Japanese ethnically in, Pearl, in, in Hawaii, which meant we were vulnerable to sabotage and espionage. It was a terrible decision uh, made by the president, yet he was never held accountable. Instead, all the blame was thrown upon our military commanders in Hawaii, General Short, and Admiral Kimmel, they were made the scapegoats, uh, and to this day, many of them still think that they were to blame for the Pearl Harbor disaster. And again, uh, up until Pearl Harbor, I think it was something like 90-some percent of the Americans were opposed to becoming, to getting involved in World War II. So again, it was another uh, disaster that was ensured by our policymakers to take place so that they could get the American support for the war, uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, the people uh, that wanted the war um, seem to have be in the driver's seat to, in order to uh, cause those policies to take place, I guess, right? Yes, they pay very close attention to opinion polls, and you're quite right. It was, uh, it was close to 90% did not want to go into this war. The World War I had been successfully debunked by revisionist historians like Helmy Hurry, Emma Barnes. People had learned the truth about the Lusitania. They needed a cluster of Lusitanias. They had tried to provoke the uh, the Germans by depth-charging subs. Uh, this is pre-World War II. The Germans were not responding. They would not go for the bait. They did not want another Lusitania. And that's why they had to turn their uh, attention to Japan. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have uh, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, uh, had dated that. Uh, he said the question was uh, what diplomatic fencing had to be done in order to put Japan into the uh, position of firing the first shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, th there's no question that uh, 
this was uh, a uh, uh, an attempt to uh, get us into that war again. The prime, I think, one of the prime motivations, the the urgency was Operation Barbarossa, but the overall agenda was the globalism, communism, and Zionism that we discussed at the outset of this particular discussion of this segment of their uh, oh. of the uh, series of wars. Okay, let's move on uh, quickly now. Unfortunately, because time is uh, precious, what about the Korean War? Give us the over the overview of the Korean War in the next five minutes, if you can. An absolutely unnecessary war. Why was there a communist regime under Kim Il-sung in North Korea in the first place? And the answer is, the United States foreign policy makers put him there in a roundabout way. And let's explain how that happened. North Korea was given to Joseph Stalin as a so-called co-victor of the Pacific War. This was outrageous. The United States had fought the Pacific War. Stalin had a non-aggression pact with Japan during World War II. He did not come into the Pacific War until five days before Japan surrendered. When he came in, we had already pounded Hiroshima with the atomic bomb. There was no need for him to come in. We actually bribed him to come in, though, at the uh, Yalta conference, you know, one of the big three conferences. Uh, President Roosevelt asked Stalin if he would come into the Pacific War, and he said he would, provided we provide him with everything he needed for his Far Eastern army to do that. So we gave him 600 shiploads of Lend-Lease, you know, tanks, vehicles, uh, munitions to, to go into the, uh, into the uh, Asian war to fight Japan. He didn't do that again until five days before the war ended. He was then given control of North Korea, completely unnecessary. He, was, um, he then put Kim Il-sung in charge. He equipped him with a 150,000-man army with tanks and MiGs. The United States, on the other hand, when we evacuated uh, South Korea, we left them without not only a single tank. They didn't have one anti- anti-tank gun. This was a setup, and I have to say that the purpose of this war, this was very specifically fought for the purpose of validating the, the newly created UN. There were a lot of naysayers who were saying that the UN could not keep peace. There were many people who wanted to preserve American sovereignty, did not want us to be under the rule of the uh, uh, UN. It was fought to validate the United Nations. It was not fought to defeat communism, which is why General MacArthur was fired, uh, uh, you know, uh, for trying to win the war. The other purpose of the Korean War was to override the the constitutional stipulation to declare war. After World War II, we never declared war again. Harry Truman sent our troops to... Uh, uh, fighting Korea under a UN mandate. He explained to the press, this is not war, it's a, po- a police action. Uh, well, you know, he should have told that to the families of the 100,000 American casualties from the from the Korean War, because primarily over 90% were American troops in, in Korea. Wow. But the purpose, the purpose of that war was to validate the United Nations, to validate world government, and to override the uh, stipulation to... Uh, to uh, declare war. And of course, we still have a, a very unstable uh, a dictatorship in northern Korea, which is still a target, I suppose, and, uh, and it probably plays into the future, of, uh, into the future for, for wars uh, down the road sometime here, I, I would imagine. Yes, and that, that dictatorship would not have existed without our diplomacy creating it in, at the time of World War II. Okay, that seems to be a pattern here. We see lots of dictatorships that evolve after we get involved. Let's go to the Vietnam War. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, and I was a young man during the Vietnam conflict. Uh, 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin Revolution, uh, Resolution. Uh, talk to us about that, and how did we get involved? Because President Kennedy, that was even before Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy started committing troops to Vietnam, and then we had the Gulf of Tonkin 
resolution. Talk to us about Vietnam and uh, yeah, and and what drove us there and why why we were there and, uh, and go on with that story if you would please. Well, I think that uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident is one of the most successfully debunked false flags in history. You can go to YouTube, look up Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, USS Maddox, uh, that was the destroyer that was allegedly attacked on the night of August the 4th, 1964. Uh, you can see the sailors from the ship admitting that there were no uh, Vietnamese ships in, uh, or torpedoes launched uh, on that night. And hmm. But in my book, I, uh, uh, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, I extensively quote from uh, uh, Admiral James Stockdale, who's recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's got uh, quite a bit of uh, credibility and uh, I quote him extensively. Uh, he overflew the scene of the alleged attack for 90 minutes, and he uh, then uh, returned uh, to uh, the aircraft carrier Ticonderoga. And uh, let me just quote from what he said. He said, uh, wheeling into the ready room, I'd hardly left three hours before I came face-to-face with about 10 assorted ships, company, air group, and staff, intelligence officers, all with sheepish grins on their faces. What in the hell has been going on out there, they laughingly asked. Then if I know, I said, it's really a flap. The guy in the Maddox air control radio was giving blow-by-blow accounts, turning left, turning right, torpedoes to the right of us, torpedoes to the left of us, boom, boom, boom. I got right down there and shot at it, whatever they were shooting at. Did you see any boats? Not a one. No boats, no boat wakes, no ricochets off boats, no boat gunfire, no torpedo wakes. Nothing but Black Sea and American firepower. Uh, now, I'm just going to, uh, Jay, I'm just going to bring it up to the uh, next morning. I'm reading it from his book, mm-hmm. from Love and War. Sure. Uh, the next morning, Stockdale was wo- awoken by a young officer. Uh, I'm quoting again from his book. Who are you, I asked. I'm the junior officer of the deck, sir. Captain sent me down to wake you. We just got a message from Washington telling us to prepare to launch strikes against the beach, sir. What's the idea of the strikes? Reprisal, sir. Reprisal for what? For last night's attack on the destroyer, sir. I flipped on my bed lamp and the young officer left. I felt like I'd been doused with ice water. How do I get in touch with the president? He's going off half cocked. We were about to launch a war under false pretenses. I felt it was a bad portent that we seemed to be under the control of a mindless Washington bureaucracy, vain enough to pick their own legitimacies regardless of the evidence. Unquote. Admiral James Stockdale, recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Well, there you have it. And, uh, you know, there at that point we had a draft, and uh, young people said, what, uh, what is this all about? Hell no, we won't go, was the chant. And another false pretense, another false flag seems to be a pattern here, doesn't it? Uh, yes, and this is why I chose to start my book, Truth and Lonely War, to show people that there is a pattern here. Uh, there is, uh, these, these are not uh, just a, a random amalgamation of events. You can see the pattern again and again. You see it happening with the, again, with the baby incubators, mm-hmm. uh, the, the non-existent weapons of mass destruction, the, the, the claims of uh, uh, chemical weapons used by Assad. When that didn't fly, now you've got the ISIS beheading videos. You know, it never ends. These, these uh, motivations for going to war never end. And I wanted to start with war in my book because I want to show people there is a pattern. And when you, there is a pattern, you say, why is there a pattern? There's a pattern because the same oligarchy is controlling America from behind the scenes. Right. And this is the uh, next thing people need to awaken up. That is really the subject of my earlier book, The Shadows of Power, uh, about the Council of Foreign Relations, which is the main instrument, the main organization by which the America's hidden oligarchy does control our foreign policy. Yeah, lots of well-paid uh, intellectuals uh, with, with uh, graduate degrees from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale that are there uh, living, a, living a luxurious life, um, essentially. 
uh, spewing out lies to a great extent, I would suggest, uh, perhaps not knowingly doing so, but part of the apparatus. And so you just basically talked about the Iraqi war, which has really turned into another disaster with even more damage and, and, and less control and more chaos in the Middle East. You just uh, talked about the reasons. Uh, again, the same people, the same the same forces, the same one-world government, the Council of Foreign Relations and others that are pushing for uh, getting rid of sovereignty. Isn't that what this is all about, getting rid of sovereignty and, and having these small group of very powerful, rich people with their uh, connections with the banking industry basically gaining control of the world? Uh, that's right. Uh, the Council of Foreign Relations was set up for the express purpose of eliminating national sovereignty. In fact, let me quote a former member of the council, Admiral Chester Ward, who resigned in disgust after 16 years from the council. He said this, he said, the, uh, quote, the council's objective is submergence of U.S. sovereignty into an all-powerful one-world government. This lust to surrender the sovereignty and independence of the United States is pervasive throughout most of the membership, unquote. You go back to the Council of Foreign Relations' very first issue of Foreign Affairs, that's their flagship journal, their very first issue had an article called The Next American Contribution to Civilization. Well, guess what that was? Join the, join the League of Nations. That was why they formed the Council of Foreign Relations, because America had rejected joining the uh, League of Nations. And, of course, there's CFR members who uh, put together the UN. But I'll give you a more recent quote on sovereignty. This is from the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, Richard Haas. Read it in 2006. He said, quote, Sovereignty must be redefined if states are to cope with globalization Globalization implies that sovereignty is not only becoming weak in reality, but that it needs to become weaker, unquote. And you'll find countless quotes coming from the council like this. And because, uh, Jay, in order to create a world government, you must first destroy national sovereignty. And that's what you see happening in the European Union. These once powerful, I mentioned before that one of the purposes of the Spanish-American War was to destroy Spain as a power. Well, they've all been destroyed. The Netherlands is the world power. They've all become provinces of the European Union and the the European Union is basically a microcosm of world government. They've got their own currency, the euro. They want a world currency for the world. You know, that would be the final outcome that they're aiming for. So right. uh, you see all these events interconnect. Uh, yeah. There is a very clear-cut plan. Yes, uh, there unfolding. is. And it is unfolding. There's no question about it as we look at current events. Well, you know, we, we really are out of time, and so I'd like to just perhaps set the stage uh, for next week. We did talk essentially about Chapter 2, The Powers That Be. Very interesting stuff in there, folks. Buy the book and read it. How did David Rockefeller almost single-handedly choose Jimmy Carter for the presidency? A story about that in there. there you know, so it, But wars are very, very expensive. They cost an awful lot of money. So that leads us to uh, the next time uh, James and I get together, we're going to talk uh, about chapter three, uh, the devil as banker is the title of that topic, and then uh, chapter four is how cartel has run America. And so those are the topics we'll be looking to talk about. Uh, James will uh, will provide us uh, some details in those in in our next uh, show, which will be the first Tuesday of April. I want to thank you, James, very much for being with us. I look forward to talking to you next on April the seventh. Well, well, thank you, Jay. Uh, thank you for uh, such informed questions, and it's a delight to be on the show and. Uh, uh, thank you for an opportunity to uh, set some of the context to give people a broader understanding because I really feel to understand world events, and many have said this before, but to understand world events now, you've got to understand what took place in the past. Absolutely, you do. I want to thank you very much for helping our listeners understand these very important issues. Thank you, James, and, and we'll talk to you next month. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. And next week, my main guest will be Richard Mayberry, who will talk about his views that the recent depegging of the Swiss franc to the euro is now the most important fact 
of our economic lives and will be for years to come. Richard always has some very prescient insights into the interchange of geopolitics and economics, so you won't want to miss what Richard has to say. Also next week, Michael Oliver will be with me once again to talk about his very unique technical analysis uh, and what it's telling him about the gold and silver markets. I do want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. 